Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Earlier this week, Coburg Police Chief Paul Vandegraaff presented his annual report for the past year to town council. Many stats were up. Number of calls, crimes rates, reported crimes, number of mental health calls, drug poisonings, overdoses, break and enters all increased. The number of complaints against police were down, as were the times when officers used force. But things have changed in other ways. There were more public meetings called to answer concerns around the downtown and the Battelle Street neighborhood. Also, A recent police investigation into a stabbing led to the Coburg Safety Panel, a multi-agency body, being called in to close homes for unsafe conditions. So how are things really going for the Coburg Police Force? On today's show, the Chief will explain many of the stats in the report, along with some of the shortcomings. He will also tackle the ongoing issue of drugs in Coburg and you will find out what kind of a job he thinks he's doing on that front. I'm so pleased to have with me today the Coburg Chief of Police, Paul Vandegraaff. Welcome back, Paul, to consider Thanks this North Thanks for having Island. me once again, Rob. What is your biggest takeaway from the 2022 annual report? Uh, the, yeah, the great thing about our annual reports is it's such a tip of the iceberg review of the great work um, that the men and women of our organization be sworn civilian and our volunteer groups um, do in, in providing community safety. Um, obviously, it has all of those significant benchmarks that include crime rates and financial, all those types of things. But the increase in demand overall across the board um, is what really stands out clear and is sort of the thing in for, foremost in my mind. Um, and uh, that's why when, when we're looking at how to construct the plan itself for the document, uh, we really wanted that snapshot. Just uh, I think that really showed, that infographic showed just the demands on our team. This is the first post-pandemic report that you've given. What does it contain that reflects the differences be- between the years that you were working within the context of the pandemic versus emerging from the pandemic? Well, what we see clearly, both in this report and the year previous, is the steady increase in calls for service. So we are seeing that, on average, that the, the registered calls for service increases around 5%. Um, and when we say a registered call for service, that's the, actually the recorded event. We also know that our members have regular uh, contacts um, with, our, with our community members that aren't necessarily a dispatch caller or a numbered call for service. Um, so when we see a steady increase of 5% over 5 and this year was 4.5%, and you layer in on that a 15% increase in uh, response to mental health type calls, 
which was already a relatively significant number, tells me that, again, the nature of the work is ever-changing for our front lines. Well, let's delve into that a little bit more. Let's explore, first of all, that 4.5% increase in the number of calls from approximately 10,000 calls to 11,000 calls. Can you explain what happened there and why the increase happened? Yeah, it's it's difficult to put your finger on one thing, but what I will do is I know a lot of the public want to talk about crime stats, and, and I think that's appropriate. Um, we do see a pretty significant increase, although our violent crime in itself is down. We did see some increases in, in certain uh, reported crimes for uh, service, specifically sexual assaults and, and level one assaults. Um, when we see an increase in sexual assaults, oftentimes people um, default to, oh my God, I'm not a safe person because of these. We know that we don't have stranger type sexual assaults in, in the previous year. Our, our sexual assaults are those that are, are known participants to each other. Um, and we also know that when you do see an increase in reporting, it shows the good work that the support agencies in the community are doing to support our team. So when you have the great people at Cornerstone or the great people in, in any social service agency, that will help us make our victims feel emboldened and empowered to report. And when they report, um, we then take a victim-centered approach to move it forward. So that's one thing um, that we did see. We also did see a pretty significant increase in theft under 5,000. Part of that is some of the local trend in that those theft from uh, motor vehicles. But another one is the being a 401 community. And we have seen a fairly regular uh, large-scale thefts from the Walmarts, the shoppers, uh, the 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 Rexalls, all of the different pharmacies, and they're in stealing those high-priced razor blades or those high-priced, uh, which are in itself not a huge dollar value, but um, uh, we we did definitely see an upswing in that in 2022. Would the current economic situation be contributing to those types of? Uh, I don't want to say minor crimes, but I don't know how else to describe it, but to say they're minor thefts, but there's still things that you have to look into. How, has that been part of this economic downturn that we've seen? Tough to attribute uh, minor theft to uh, an economic crisis that we're currently facing across the country, because when times were robust, we had people stealing small stuff from people's cars or from their yards or from their garages or from their homes. Um, but definitely when there's increased pressure economically and when you do see increase is in other social disorder issues, then these natural thefts and these natural, uh, I hate the term, but it is uh, it is commonly understood, the petty crime. And at our most recent town hall meeting, um, I was very quick to say that a petty crime by our definition is not petty to the person who's had their garage broken into. It's very significant to them. So I, I'm always cautious when I use the language, but I'm trying to use language that people commonly use. You already mentioned that there was a 15% increase in the number of mental health calls. What is it that attributed to? Uh, is it one of those things when, you know, we have the MHART program in place? Is this the reason that we're seeing the increase? Yeah, for sure. And that's a very simple criminological, if you will, or criminology of theory in that when you create space for people to uh, access the service, you're going to have an increase in reporting. It doesn't necessarily mean you have an increase in that event. So our MPART team is really a second tier. They're following up on a lot of the calls for service. But in economic crisis, people are losing their homes. 
Uh, people cannot afford to get their homes. Maybe they're not getting the work they need. They coming out of the pandemic, um, the, the mental health of our populace, in my opinion, isn't isn't consistent with everything being open and having all the festivals back in town. I still feel there is lingering effect for people who who don't want to work in the sense of they they like the hybrid model. It became it became a better lifestyle, and now they're not working or changes in that, and that people don't need as many people in office spaces. So. The, the issues around mental health are always, always concurrent um, in that it's, it's, we also do know that there are significant people underserviced um, and that's no fault of anybody, but uh, there are obviously you look at any of the community living home, you look at for, uh, forecast, the county, transition house, cornerstone, there are underserviced populations. There are people who um, cannot access services when they need them. So if you have to wait two weeks to get into uh, a, a, a mental health professional just to, to just to start the road to, 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 to the road to ready, um, those two weeks falls on the shoulders of uh, of my team, and um, and and that, those are those impacts that we're seeing. But is that really the case? I mean, if you talk to the hospital, they'll tell you that their mental health services they now have more drop-ins, they have expanded those services. You talk to a Northumberland Community Counseling. Um, and those who provide those services, they'll tell you that there there's uh, spaces and people are responding. Is it is that really the explanation in, in light of those things that are going on in the community? Listen, I can I can show you wait lists. Wait lists, wait lists say it all. Uh, and and all the work that Northumberland Hospital does with their counseling is perfect because it is that get somebody in within those periods of time. But to get into ongoing care. Those wait lists don't talk about in-depth psychiatric appointments. Those are six to eight months out, and that's the and that's the kind of intervention some people require. Ongoing, uh, ongoing treatment for a psychological disorder um, is not there. Um, uh, the, the, the family doctor situation across Ontario is obvious, as we know. Many family doctors are that frontline mental health professional, and they're providing that kind of treatment and therapy uh, at the outset. So yes, there's a lot of great work being done. But I sit on the board of Cornerstone and the great work that team does. And we know that we could always service more. Um, we know that the wait lists for, for youth at Rebound exist. And Nicole Woods doing a tremendous job in that transition from Carol Beauchamp at Rebound. Uh, but we know there are wait lists for certain lanes, not all lanes, but for certain lanes. And I'm not to discredit anybody who's doing that work. Just it is what it is. There are a series of stats in the report that provide uh, are provided without any context. For example, you state uh, there are 89 suspected drug poisonings. There was another 59 cases where naloxone was administered. There were 44 B&Es. Now, none of this means too much if we don't know about the previous trend. Why did you do this in the report? So um, if you look at, at the report, um, when when we talk about the amount of break and enters or the amount that that is something that I've heard loud and clear from our community that they're interested in knowing. So when we look at our violent crime or our nonviolent crimes um, statistics, we'll see that there increases. So the infographic will show people that if it's an arrow pointing up, there's an increase and a decrease. I'm always very cautious about looking at any one particular number in an isolated year as to say what it is or what it isn't. However, is my my responsibility is to report what the community raises to me. As everybody knows, I'm a, I'm a very approachable police leader, and 
they want to know how many break-ins are occurring. That's something that's important. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's what we're we're talking about. What we're talking about is contextualizing these numbers, saying what was it like in 2021 or 2020 or 2019. In other right. words, that we can see the trends. You're giving us numbers, which is great, and you're showing the nice little graphics with the arrows up, and we know there's an increase, but by how much? And, you know, doesn't this then, I mean, when you say there's 89 suspected drug poisonings, well, how many was there the year before or the year before that? So that we get a better understanding of what's going on in the community. You're the chair of the board in his message in the report says, quote, he, this represents transparency and accountability, but if there's nothing to compare to it, how are people supposed to judge? Is this really transparent and accountable? Sure. So again, the annual report, like I said at the outset of this, is a tip of the iceberg. So this is a snapshot of what 22 looked like. We do provide that kind of detail every month at the Police Services Board. Those minutes and meetings are public. And in that, we do definitely contextualize year to year. Um, I don't think we do a three-year trend, but we definitely do year to year, quarter to quarter. So, for instance, in your case, and we do have this data available, and your point is well taken. So, in 2021, we saw 58 break and enters um, with a clearance rate of 26%. And this year, we have 44, so a decrease in that. And our clearance rate is all but the same as 25%. So, I get your point. And then drug poisonings, um, I'm not sure if I even have that number in front of me, but, um, but I can tell you that that is a sudden increase. Um, and the times that naloxone are deployed by our officers are spot in time, um, I guess, to your point. Uh, I, I'm not showing it year to year, but that is definitely something as we move forward in future annual reports that we can definitely add to. I encourage everybody, though, to look at our uh, business, uh, sorry, our, our, our board meeting uh, reports. It's actually one report. I know there's some of them that are really heavy. Just read the operational report. Um, and you'll you'll see that contextualized statistical recounting. Why did this report include vignettes of service, stories from the front lines, if you will? Why did you do this? Because it's not been done before. Yeah, this is uh, something that our communications team and, um, and and our senior command looked at. And this is a recognition of what our team does each and every day. And we do so much that people sometimes don't necessarily understand or put, put their minds to. So we, we did that in honoring some of our team, really is to recognize this is our service and this is their annual report. And we really, really wanted to, to highlight some of the great work being done individually. There's lots on the budget. Are you still facing issues with the number of officers who are on medical leave? And was there anything in the report that explains the pressures and the impacts uh, on overtime? Uh, yeah, so, so lots of questions there. So I'll go back and yes, we are still feeling the impacts of uh, ongoing disability management. Um, as our police services across the country, uh, we're, no, we're no different, no worse, no better. Um, our, our, our numbers tend to fluctuate. Um, but uh, we still sit at the provincial average, about 20-ish percent of frontline personnel cannot, cannot uh, do all duties as per the Police Services Act. Some are on permanent accommodations, others are on permanent disabilities, not at work at all. So we definitely are on that. Credit to the Police Services Board for um, taking the lead and allowing me to replace um, those officers uh, when they hit a certain milestone. And then there's a cost recovery from WSAB. There's a lot of detailing in there. It's not re really relative here, but um, the board did uh, in 2019, did, did give me that kind of runway. So we've, we've been managing that. 
Um, the increased demand on our team, the increased demands uh, from a variety of agencies, be it the Crown's office or the courts or everywhere in between, um, is increasing the pressure on our staff for sure. Um, we do have lots of work working towards very collectively with our associations, both the senior officers and the and the office and the general association in wellness and creating opportunities to make sure that our people when are off can get back as soon as they can. Um, and then when it comes to budget, we are in a unique we oh, wait, wait, wait before you so, before you go on. Yeah. There's none of that. I, I mean I appreciate your explanation and it, and we've talked about this before. Why is it not in the report? First off, much of the information to be in the report would uh, actually significantly, without full context, um, even my conversation today, I'm sure people would be listening to the show and still be left confused. Uh, an annual report in that kind of detail would be 500 pages, and we're just not doing that. That's just not the purpose of an annual report. Um, purpose of the annual report is to clearly demonstrate when we get into budget, um, and our upcoming budget. We did it last year at budget presentation, and we're going to be doing it even more detailed at this year's budget presentation. We do break down those costs of disability management very thoroughly, actually, that are not member-specific, but are uh, community-specific. So again, it's finding that right document where that information is most appropriately in. Um, again, the annual report, like I said, it's the tip of the iceberg to, to highlight those things. The Police Services Act tells me these are the three or four things that at minimum the annual report has to cover. But um, we have obviously, to your point, um, gone far beyond that. Um, to get into those types of small lanes, um, it's just it's just not uh, it's just not practical to document of this nature. Well, to that point, in the report this year, it contains race data collection. Now, in the past, this was not included in annual reports. Why? I the believe it wasn't the last one, but I can definitely double check. But I think it was, and the reason it was is it's part of our use of force reporting now. So that is a new regulation that came in that, as part of our use of force reporting, we have to uh, we have to. The, and this is the only. This is really unique. Actually, another topic all to its own. Um, it is the only act, the only regulation that actually requires the police officers to make an assumption on someone's race. In every other circumstance in Ontario, a person is asked to self-declare, and if they choose not to, then they, that they, they, the person owns that right as well. In this particular act, when it comes to the use of force regulation under the Police Services Act, we're asking our police officers to, in their best opinion, identify the person's uh, race of origin. And could you share the numbers that you found and, and how that relates to that particular context yeah, so when you look at our, we, we, again, we don't have a, 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 a lot of use of force reports or reportings, um, but when you look at those, that, that is probably relatively, on a ratio basis, representative of the community that is in front of us is what Cobra looks like. So what that shows me is that when we are using use of force, one of it definitely in a in a reduced number, our applications of use of, and, and our use of force reports are down from the previous year. Um, um, it, it, it shows that the multitude of people who we're dealing with, in fact, all but one are, are Caucasian individuals. Last year, body cameras were a big thing. Now they have been in place for a while. Uh, what is your assessment and what have you said in the report that is significant for people to know about body cameras? Uh, listen, there's a lot to be significant. This is, this is, this is policing of the future. And I think I've said to you before and others for sure, 
Um, when we made this uh, decision to roll forward very, very aggressively with a timeline on this, um, it was because it's not about do you have body-worn cameras, but pretty soon the communities across Ontario, if not the country, are going to say, why don't you? So we, we were able to leverage uh, some of that uh, non-taxation revenue and fund this over a great opportunity. We were able to upgrade our use of force uh, in that uh, new conducted energy weapon. What, are seen, what I've seen first and foremost is that my membership, bar none, 100% bar none, have accepted um, this as being the technology of the day. And I have had no issues. And that speaks to the great communication that we worked on internally with an internal committee and, and working with external stakeholders, the hospitals, the courts, the cornerstones, the rebounds. And we really ro rolled out a robust body-worn camera policy. The deputy chief did a fantastic job in spearheading that. And it is as a part, a necessary part of the kit. Now, when I see a new officer who hasn't been trained on it yet, but I see the carriage without the camera, it actually jumps off the pages. Hey, we're missing something there. As far as the community goes, we've had a few uh, freedom of information requests for their video. Not as many as we originally thought, but we've had a few. And um, by and large, that's met without any, uh, any delays from uh, the FOI uh, timeline. So that, that's also really, really good. And this is a great anecdote is that um, without getting into great details on it, we do have an incident where going back pre body worn cameras where an officer is working through some lit litigation processes or the services, not the officer, the, the people sue the service. Right. So the officer said under discovery, I wish I had a body worn camera, then you would have seen what really happened. So that kind of sums it up pretty good to me. Let's talk about drugs. You say in the report you've arrested 13 people and seized all kinds of drugs and, and stopped $131,000 worth of drugs being sold. Now, that all sounds really impressive. But my question to you is, have you moved the needle? Are you winning the battle to control drugs in our community? Ooh, let's see. Uh, Ronald Reagan started the war on drugs, right? I just want to put it into context. So that was 1980. So how are we doing on the war on drugs? Um, what I can tell you is that, and this is really important, in that the fentanyl seized were potentially 2,200 overdoses that were prevented. Not deaths, um, incidents. That's really good. A lot of work that goes into, into um, getting these search warrants together. It, people don't understand the amount of time and effort going in and because and, we're actually using a very... We are, we are getting a judicial order to, to infringe upon someone's charter rights in the search warrant. So uh, kudos to the team. Um, again, all the work going into getting this done. And for me to see that kind of cocaine, crack cocaine, crystal meth and fentanyl off of our community. Are we moving the needle? I'm going to say that if you've prevented potentially 2,200 overdoses, then the needle has moved. Um, are, are, are we in a drug-free community here? No. Is there an opioid epidemic across the country, if not North America? Yes. Um, is there one simple answer? No. Um, so our team work very collectively to get those people responsible for bringing drugs into our community and hold them accountable. I know there's a lot of misunderstanding, and I've been to two community meetings in the last six months where over 200 people at each one, and they're yelling and screaming at me for not doing enough about people sitting on the street corner smoke, smoking uh, smoking drugs. And I have to remind them, the federal government has indicated simple possession and our federal crown is not proceeding with simple possession offenses. So my officers have no 
lane there other than to, hey, you shouldn't be smoking in a non-smoking building, technically. Um, we still do the M heart, we still do the heart, we still connect to resources, but at the end of the day, um, the drugs are drugs. Um, there is uh, a decriminalization approach across the country, definitely in Ontario. Um, there is substance abuse issues that are foremost in our mind. Uh, we're going to talk about encampments, we're going to talk about safe consumption sites. Um, all of these things are happening in towns across Ontario. So to say, did we move the needle or not? You know what? If we didn't do the work we were doing, I would I would say that the drug issue would be a lot worse. So the needle has moved. Well, let's delve into this a little bit more deeply then. More recently, the Cobra Police have held several other public meetings to deal with uh, these concerns. Uh, one was in the Lions Centre and another was with the residents of Battelle Street. How are you measuring the results of those meetings and how can you show that there is a difference to the community? Sure. So uh, quantitatively, what we, we will demonstrate is a promise is made as a promise kept. So in both cases, visibility was the issue, was what we heard is the, is the key thing that we could resolve. So we track the amount, we, we, we show the increased amount of foot patrols or directed patrols in those particular areas. We report on the crime. So there is another board report every month that hits the board report. It's called the Directed Patrol Initiative, which is the downtown. Um, specific, this, this came out of the Lion Center. And we also measure the value of those meetings in, in why we do them. So I, 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 as chief, have called both of those. Um, that's been something that I've said, okay, there's enough going on. There's enough noise and rhetoric or, and anecdote or whatever is happening. We are going to get in front of this. And, and I put myself as the, as the sort of the front face. And when I get there, we get met with sometimes dis, dis, disheartened individuals. We get met with a conflicting um, viewpoints um, on how drugs should or drug users or encampments should be managed or not managed. Um, then, and in the latter meeting, we have a, a group of uh, neighborhoods, uh, individuals who are more concerned about one particular address and some of the actions that were happening there. But then again, it bled to a broader community thing. And what we hear constantly is the same type of stuff. So we've increased our visibility, we've increased our patrol, all measurable. We measure the amount of time spent, we measure the arrest, we measure the impact. Uh, we worked with the public, uh, the Cobra Safety Panel, which is the group of all of the various town departments, and it's an operational, so it's not a chief level, it's the operations level people at these committee meetings looking at these problematic residences. Um, and then we, 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 we collectively say who has the best uh, angle to correct this, and more times than not, as we've seen, it's not police. It's uh, bylaw, it's fire, it's health unit, it's um, building planning uh, the chief building officer. So that's the outcomes. The outcomes of this is that significant change, measurable, identified things have been done. So we've, 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 uh, the health unit shut down an address. Um, we've made sure that the other addresses are actually being used as their principal intention, um, meeting with the code, meeting with fire and electrical standards. We are dealing with a crime and criminal element in that. Um, and what I hear from the community tells me that it's a value and that I get a lot of comments. Thank you. Can you do more? This is great, but what if? So that inter that interaction and that collaboration with our community 
is that other piece, which in my opinion as chief is measurable in that I say, I'm going to stand in front of you. Um, and when I get four or five emails after the meeting that say, hey, chief, you shouldn't have had to eat and all that. That's nice to hear. But at the end of the day, I'm the person who sits in the chair responsible for community safety. And uh, my well, job is to be available. Let, let's talk about this community safety panel because you've alluded to it. And I, I'm not clear, and, and maybe some listeners aren't clear, as to how you identify these buildings. I mean, is there some kind of, uh, what is the process by which you decide? Yeah, yeah, it's easy. It, the model the model for the, the, the public safety panel, it was informal. We did it once before uh, 351 John Street. I don't mind saying that address because it was actually our beta case, our beta test for this. And, um, and what it is, is it's no different than the hubs or the situational tables that are very common. And what it is, is a group of community partners in that case, coming together to bring a high acuity person. What we've done is we've taken that and really watered it down. So now we have all of those stakeholders I've mentioned at the table. And what we say is anybody can bring the issue to the table. I, as police, typically, as in the situational tables, bring most of the issues to the table. But it could be the chief building officer brings the issue to the table saying, hey, I got this problem address. They're just not listening. I've got some fire hazards. We've got garbage piling up. Um, whatever the circumstance, uh, with pest, pest infestation. We come, to the, we come to the table, everybody shares their expertise, and then somebody leaves the table with the ball. And what that, is, what that means is somebody can be the lead agency on how to manage this moving forward. Um, in the case of 413 Division Street, it turned out it was really, it, it was something that wasn't, it was brought because of a, uh, when fire went there for a medical distress call, they observed some things they couldn't turn their eye to, and the, the, everything started to work around it. And actually, the, the lead unit actually was the ESSA, the Electrical Standard Safety Authority, and the health unit, HKPR. They ended up being the ones that, that, that took the immediate action. So that's where that works, because we look at these community problems as being something that is more than crime. Um, if we look at just the crime element, then we will constantly live in the world of criminal displacement where I will throw everything at one street, throw everything at one house, all the uniforms, everything there, put up a CCTV camera, all of those things. The problem is just going to move somewhere else. Like we haven't resolved the underlying issues of poverty, homelessness, addictions, mental health, and or the person just wants to be a criminal. Like I, I like there are people who aren't the other four who are drug traffickers or who are going to live in the criminal element. So um, what we try to do is look at it far more holistically to say, what is it that we can all bring to this problem for a longer term solution? Because if you're looking at my officers as being the ones to solve it, we will only solve it for today and tomorrow. We will not solve it for the long run. Recently, we've seen uh, action in regards to an encampment on the West Beach and removing that encampment and also uh, a number of complaints around homeless people um, being in, in various locations around Coburg. What has been the involvement of the police in this particular um, effort to um, to uh, resolve these issues? Yeah, so this is exactly in the same line or venue of what we were just talking about. Encampments on private property fall squarely on 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 my team, so we have somebody who puts up a an encampment on private property. Um, it's very easy. Our people show up, and they would ask these people to vacate private property or be subject to a trespass. And generally, these people move along without any issue. 
public property is the complete and sole lane of the municipality and that of the municipal bylaw authority. We work in concert with them again at the public safety table, but we also work in concert with them in providing them and their staff um, safety should they require it. So in other words, just like just like in Peterborough. Um, so when they have to attend the encampment for any particular reason, um, our, if they feel that there are somebody else, safety could be at risk. Um, our officers attend to provide that kind of safety. But as far as the day-to-day -day interactions, interventions in those encampments, that's something that rests squarely on the municipal bylaw. And that is, and that is uh, demonstrated by council meeting on last Friday and to have conversations about how they're going to move forward with the encampments. Were you involved in any of those discussions? No, we were not. Uh, we were not involved in those discussions other than a preliminary understanding of where they are, who, who's who's at them, is there anything that we needed to do in relation to that? We had a call for service um, over the weekend at, at a particular encampment and our officers attended that place like they would any other place, provided the assistance that the individual required and um, and, we, and we moved along. So we haven't been involved in these in-camera conversations. What are your goals going forward for 2023? What changes do you wanna see? Uh, 2023 will begin with our, uh, uh, our budget uh, deliberations, which are complete internally, we'll get ready to present those to the board in, in, in the very near future and then onwards to council. Um, so our goals moving forward are to continue on our meeting our objectives in the strategic business plan as set by the board. Um, we're drawing to the end of, of that particular strategic plan. So we got to look at uh, those areas where we need to uh, maybe heighten some attention. Um, we will be looking at our staff. We'll be spending a fair amount of time in 2023 really dissecting what it is our officers are doing, how they're doing it, and is there are there efficiencies. We recognize the, the nature of the town, as, as I've said, the calls for service are increasing steadily. Um, staffing has been relatively consistent. There's been lots of turnover, but not where we, we've been consistent in our numbers. So we'll be looking at staffing allotments. Uh, we're going to be looking at obviously keeping our business center uh, alive and thriving. And, and I'm, I'm working with some government to look at some opportunities for advocacy for some change to the federal and provincial um, acts that govern that. Um, we are going to continue a robust um, attempt to create a very covert police specific uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion plan. And we're ready to launch our internal diversity census, uh, which is a very robust project um, that uh, we were lucky to get a grant from the provincial government on. So before we can determine what our plan needs to look like, we have to see what we are. And that's uh, really, uh, that's, that's gonna be, because um, it's not only asking our staff to identify, what they are, but how they feel about inclusion. So these are these are going to be some 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 touchy subjects. So we're going to move forward very collectively again with our associations. Um, we work very closely here with all partners, but specifically internally. So moving forward, we're going to work with our board, try to, to try to provide the best service for our community. Very robust responses to these to these types of social disorder issues that infringe upon people's right to to be safe in their own space. Uh, continue to be present. Um, and but yeah, so right moving forward, we're going to be really looking at what are those what are those issues? So we're going to continue the war on drugs for it to, to, to say to, to, to go back to an earlier point. We're going to continue on delivering 
um, robust, dynamic, enhanced patrols to those communities, wherever that community is that needs it. Um, and again, I looked at the amount of complaints uh, against our officers ever decreasing. Um, we're going to continue to deliver a service um, that's second to none, as I understand it, and to 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 look to the two officers who put their own lives in jeopardy on the weekend to save the life of another. That's the kind of vision and mission that I'm fortunate enough to lead a group with forward. Did, did I miss something in the news? Was What do you mean about two officers putting their lives on the line? We had an uh, individual drown in the... Uh, uh, at the at the beach. Yes, I and, saw uh, that. We, we we had an opportunity where um, we thought we were able to save the individuals, and both of our officers bailed into the water, shed their gear, bailed into the water, but unable to retrieve him. I see. The current grabbed him and moved moved him away. So, um, yeah, there was uh there was some fire, and there was a there's a debrief happening right now as we speak, just to make sure our officers' mental health are well checked. All, right. All right, Chief, I want to thank you so much for your time today. No problem, Rob. As always, it's a pleasure. That was Coburg Police Chief Paul Van de Graaff discussing the 2022 annual police report. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.